Well, let's jump right in. As a little bit of a, a recap from last week, we're going to kind of recap where we're at, just get everybody on the same page. So we've been in this series, The Alternate Reality, for a while. And the alternate reality is the, the distinction between the world that we live in and the world that we're a part of. And when you're a born-again believer, it says, if you are in Christ, okay? So going to church doesn't make you in Christ. Being born into a Christian family doesn't make you uh, in Christ. It's contrary to popular belief. Being born in America doesn't make you in Christ. Like, you're not, there is no, like, patriarchal passing down of the torch, if you will. But to be in Christ is to be born again to be saved, and we're going to get into that a little bit more today. But what we begin to look at is that we're in a world that we are part here in, 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 as an, an ambassador for Christ, His imager, His representative on the earth. And as we began to look at the different aspects of that, as we kind of understand who we are, our positioning, all of this kind of stuff, we've gotten to the part where we're talking about these covenants. And if you begin to understand the covenantial nature of Scripture and how God works with His people, it will all make a lot more sense. The idea of what the Bible is and what it's talking about will make a lot more sense. In fact, there's one simple thing that when I explain this to people, really makes the scriptures come alive and it's such a simple simple uh thing that it's it's surprising that we don't catch it but i didn't you know i didn't grow up believing this is that when you understand that the bible was written for you and not to you and if it was written for your benefit but it wasn't written to you you know if my my grandmother wrote me a letter one time many years ago back when that was the way of, of communication she was from detroit so it wasn't like we were i could run over to grandma's house anytime we wanted and so she wrote me this letter that was addressed to my favorite grandchild. I may have embellished that a little, but, but, but she wrote this, and it was very specific things to me, addressing me, conversations that we have. Because I remember this as a young, a young child. I was probably 12, 13, something like that. It was probably for my birthday. I don't even remember what it was for. But there were things specific, and I've told you the story about the steakums, Okay. But when she, she said in there, like, when you come back up, I'll make sure i got lots of boxes. Don't go buy those things. They're disgusting. I don't know why I liked them so much as a child. But anyway, and, and it was very specific. And if I took that letter and I handed it to my brother and he read it, how much of that was applicable to him specifically? It's, it's none. I mean, he ate with me, so he's probably pretty excited about that. But all the other things were very specific about the relationship that she and I had because it was written from a certain person to a certain person. But the character of my grandmother is inside of that letter would certainly spill over to every other grandchild except the favorite part. You only get one. That was me. By default, I was the first. And so as we begin to understand that, that the, the scriptures were not written to us. It's not a love letter from God to us. It was written by men full of the Holy Spirit, that were led by the Holy Spirit, and inside of it captures the character and ideas of God. And so there's application on every page. But the specifics matter. And we have to start there. That's why context gives us everything. And these covenants are part of that because God works through covenants. So let me show you these again. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because we've, we've talked about these. Are we, gonna, we got them up there, big guy? There we go. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> But all these different covenants all had different parts to play in it. And what they were, I'm okay, what they were is God making a promise on behalf or to somebody on their behalf. So in other words, the Adamic covenant was the promise that God said, hey, if you, can, you eat of every tree that you want, whatever looks delicious, except this one, 
And if you do, there will be consequences. And did God hold up the end of, his, of the bargain? Yeah, absolutely he did. The Noah covenant, covenant with Noah, was simply this. I will never again destroy the world with water. So we don't have to worry, worry about a worldwide flood again. That was his promise. What did Noah have to do to keep it? Nothing. God said, I'm not going to do it. You see that rainbow there? That's the sign. You and I will remember this. It'll be, it'll be something between you and I. The Abrahamic covenant was really twofold. The first part of it being that he will be a blessing to all people all over the world. And the second part was the land. And some people will separate that into its own thing. The land covenant. Promise to the nation of Israel. I will bring you into a land that is not yours, that you didn't know, that you didn't buy. It's going to belong to you. And there's a whole bunch of stuff going in there. But what did Abraham have to do to keep it? Nothing. Just exist. Because God made the promise. So this is what we call a unilateral covenant. This was God saying, I'm going to do this for you. But then when we come to the Mosaic covenant, this was a covenant cut between God and the nation of Israel. And he said, I will be your God, you will be my people. And if you do what I say in the commandments, you'll be blessed. And if not, you'll be cursed, and there will be consequences thereof. Do you accept these terms? And they, of course they did. They ratified it. They, they wrote it down in the book, it says. They sprinkled blood and all of that. And then they made the golden calf. So they lasted 37 seconds. But be that as it may, it was something that they could break. And they did. And then God would do something. If you read the book of Judges about how things were good, then they would start worshiping the other gods. And God would send judgment, just like he said he was going to do. And then they didn't like that, so they would repent. Then God would re- raise up a deliverer, a judge. And they would repent and all of that, and they'd be set free, and things would be good again, and they'd start worshiping the other gods, just like your children, right? Just like the world around us. We you know, can't have enough of a good thing. And so when we look at that one, that is the only distinction there. The Davidic covenant is that Jesus himself would sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem, that somebody from his body from perpetuity will sit there. That hasn't happened yet, but it is a promise to David. David didn't have to sacrifice 37 chickens to make it happen. There was no strings attached. It just is what it is. And then the last one is the new covenant. That's what you and I are in. And this is between the Father and the Son on behalf of mankind. But there's specifics in there, and that's what we begin to talk about. So I want to show you these pictures here again. I know we've talked about that. But at the heart of the Mosaic covenant (coughs) was the temple and the priesthood. And this here is a picture of the high priest. It was a picture of the high priest. And the high priest took the day off, apparently. So... We still have new technology going on back there, and we're back. We're not back. Okay? If i got to act this out, I can. You know, I can do it. So, um, okay, so I'm going to act it out while, they, while Mr. Uh, Peter guy back there is fixing it, not fixing it. I think you made it worse. Did you unplug it, plug it back in? Yeah. That's, that's the end of my technology-like abilities. Yeah. Yeah, Control-Alt-Delete, all that stuff. Like, that's where it ends for me. All right, well, why they reboot that? Understand this, that the priesthood was you had to be a Levite. And they served the people, and they were intermediary between God and the people. And so they would bring the sacrifice in, whatever it was, all the different sacrifices that they had. It was a part of their worship, and there was different reasons they had to do it without getting into all the mud of that stuff. And they would bring in that priest, would sacrifice the animal, and he would take the blood, and they would do all the different things. But the high priest had a very unique role. And that role was to be an intermediary for the nation of Israel as a whole and God. And so what he would do on the Day of Atonement, he would sacrifice the animals for himself, then uh, for the nation, and he would have to go in. And as he would go through that veil that you saw for just a second there, he would have to pass through that. 
into the Holy of Holies. And in there was where the Ark of the Covenant was and the mercy seat, which was the throne of God. So the Shekinah glory was there. And in it, that was the presence of God. And when he entered in, he had to be atoned for. And if he wasn't, if he didn't do every little detail correct, it would cost him his life. And by doing so, if it did, you know, messed up, didn't do it right, whatever, there would now be no atonement for the sin for the nation that year because there was not a pinch hitter that could be sent in. There was no backup plan. And so it was very detailed and it was very explicit of all the details of what in here that's unique. And, and I got asked questions about this, and this is why uh, we're going to go into this a little bit today because there's confusion. Because every single one of those covenants was with somebody, right? Or a group of somebodies. And this one is no different. In Jeremiah chapter 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The two houses. So Israel as a whole gets divided. You got the good nation to the south, the ones that were still worshiping God. And you got the naughty ones to the north who were doing whatever they wanted to do. Israel, Judah. And he's going to make a new covenant with them. Right? Isn't that what he said? Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, which of course we know they broke. So if that new covenant is with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, what does that have to do with us? See, it's a conundrum. We know and we understand that the Mosaic Covenant was written to the nation of Israel, laid out for them, and it really has no application to us. Jesus fulfilled it. Many Jewish people, born-again Jewish people today, will still keep many aspects of that. Paul did, Peter did, there's nothing wrong with that. But according to Acts 15, there was no reason for a Gentile believer to get on board with that. But the Abrahamic covenant has benefits for us. Certainly, the covenant with Noah does, right? Like, the flood last, you know, a few years ago was pretty bad. We found dry land. So what does this have to do with? Well, it's getting into this aspect of what the new covenant has to do with and what the expectations were when Messiah came. So let's look at this. We read this last week. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. It says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, let me ask you this question. When it talks about it being a mystery, that means it was hidden prior to the revelation of it, right? They weren't expecting it. They didn't, they didn't know. They were not prepared for this. And here Paul is talking and explaining that this was a mystery that the generations of past did not know, meaning they weren't prepared, they weren't expecting it, but now has been revealed to us, this Christ in us. And we went through several passages a week or so ago of talking about Christ in us, the Spirit of God in us, which is a fulfillment of Ezekiel 36. That the Spirit, this new Spirit within. But, we talk about this covenant being with them. How do we become 
partakers of it. And from a Gentile perspective, especially an American modern Christian perspective, if I ask you what the main emphasis of the new covenant was, your response would be most often one word. Salvation. You must be saved. Right? You hear it all the time. Saved, born again, whatever. Whatever term you want to put on. But here's the question. And this is what we don't answer. Saved from what? What am I being saved for? And why must I be saved? Yes, God said it. So there's that aspect. But what does that have to do with the new covenant? So let's get into this a little deeper. We're going to go over to Luke chapter 24. I want to show you something, what they were expecting when Messiah came. When I say they, I mean the nation of Israel. In Luke chapter 24, this is after the resurrection. This is known as the Emmaus Road. Now, I did a series a few years ago called the Emmaus Road, and if you get a chance, you can go back and listen to that, how we spent an entire year going through the Old Testament and how you can see Christ on every page and how it had to do with Him. But Luke chapter 24, verse 13, Now behold... Two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. Now stop. The day that Jesus died was uh, Passover. Three days later, he rose. They are now leaving Jerusalem and heading to Emmaus. It's not a far road. So they had been there this entire time. Okay, But there were a lot of people that were in Jerusalem. Verse 14, And they talked together of all these things which happened. Which things? Jesus' burial, his death, and supposed resurrection, okay? So it was while they conversed in reason that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. So they didn't recognize him. Whether that was an act of God or whatever, it seems to imply that. But they're going out and they converse in reason, trying to figure out what just happened. So Jesus walks up to them and he says, what kind of conversation is this that you have, ha- you have with one another as you walk and are sad? So this is common practice because as they would walk, another Jew may walk up and say, hey, can I join you? We're heading the same direction, right? Just because they wanted somebody to talk to. But as they're walking, now you get the demeanor. So they're not having a jovial conversation. You know, there's no jokes like a priest and a rabbi walk into a bar. Nothing like that is going on. They are trying to figure out what just happened because... The guy we've been following is dead. Verse 18, then one of who, uh, the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have, not, have you not known the things which happen therein these days? In other words, we're coming from the same place. How do you not know what just happened? You've got to remember, at one point, the ground shook. At one point, it got dark when it wasn't dark. At one point, the temple, the veil, torn. Where you been, dude? And he said to them, what things? And so they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. Now watch this. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Do you remember who went? Peter, right? 
Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now here's the thing. He still has not been revealed to them. But what did he do? He said, now wait a minute. Shouldn't the Christ have suffered? Remember, Christ isn't his last name. It's a title. Shouldn't he have suffered all of this? Like, shouldn't, have this, uh, shouldn't you have been prepared for this? See, they're sad because they weren't expecting it. And it seems as if, and I'm stepping out on a limb here, that they didn't even necessarily believe what the women and Peter had said because why are you leaving? If Jesus is out walking around, I'm looking for him. And so what Jesus does, he says, shouldn't they have, like, shouldn't the Christ have suffered these? And he begins at Moses and all the prophets. Remember, there's three sections of what they called the Tanakh, the Old Testament. And he expounded them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Beginning to end, as they have this seven-mile walk. Now, how long would it take you to walk seven miles? It'd take me three days. So, verse 28. So then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with him. Now this is such a Jewish thing that we don't even get because of what the expectations were. When you have a stranger come with you, you are expected to show hospitality and invite them in, give them a place to sleep and something to eat. But you as the stranger are not supposed to expect that. And so you nicely say, oh, I'm just going to keep moving on. Oh no, we insist, come on in. Right? It's not like it's somebody who would just break into your house and steal all your ice cream and hide in the other room and eat it. Right? it's an old story just so you know verse 30 so now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread he blessed and broke it and gave it to them this is a normal thing this is what they would have done this is this is not communion or anything like that this is what they do then watch this their eyes were opened and they knew him it was in that moment that the blinders were lifted off and they knew him they're excited they see him. he's eating with us and what happens next he vanished from their sight. Doggone it. What a magic trick that is. So in a moment, they knew this is Jesus. Watch what he says, verse 32. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked, to, talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? It's like there was this something in them telling them that this isn't some random guy walking. They didn't realize it until that very moment. But in here shows us what not only the nation of Israel was waiting for, but even Jesus' disciples. He said the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. I'm back at 19. How the chief priest and all that, verse 21. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. What does that mean? As I've told you in the past, that there's two parts and two aspects to the Messiah's role. You have the suffering servant aspect, as Jesus said, shouldn't these things have happened to the Christ? And then there's the reigning king aspect of where he sits on David's throne, fulfilling the Davidic covenant. Well, what part were they waiting on? They were underneath the thumb of Rome. He's going to sit on that throne, redeem us from this other nation, this pagan nation, so therefore we can live free people 
once again. The reason they believed that for a very long time at that point, of all the things that had happened to the nation of Israel, they believed that the nation itself was the suffering servant, and they were waiting on Messiah to come and sit as king. Guess what? They're still waiting for that today. We know that it wasn't two Messiahs coming once, it was one Messiah coming twice. But they didn't know that. You see, they're waiting for Messiah to redeem Israel. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. It says, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. When you are bought, redemption has now occurred. When you redeem a gift certificate, it is now back into its ownership and you receive whatever the value of it was. In this case, mankind has the ability to be redeemed by God, bought with a price, and therefore we glorify God in our body and in our spirit. In other words, our lives belong to Him. But they were not prepared for that. When they talk of salvation, they weren't thinking we get to heaven because I'll tell you this, Heaven's not our goal, because He's going to make a new one. Our goal is redemption, eternity with God. Now, many of us will call that heaven, but that's really not what it's talking about. New heavens, new earth. We're going to be all hanging out. We might be right here. Who knows what we'll be doing? Now, turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Because, okay, that's great, and we have that aspect with the nation of Israel, this new covenant with the house of Israel, house of Judah, What does that have to do with us? Verse 11, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh. Great. Now we know who Paul's addressing, right? Is he writing this to a bunch of Jewish guys? No, he's writing this to a bunch of Gentile guys. Remember, there's Jew and then everybody else. You're Jewish or you're not. We call that Gentile. Sometimes it'll say Greek. Who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Now what is that talking about? Circumcision was a part of the sign of that covenant. That you were circumcised as an infant. And therefore you were underneath that covenant. You were a Jewish man. And these uncircumcised Philistines. Uncircumcised whatever. They weren't in that covenant. They didn't have anything to do with God. That at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we were not a covenant people, but now we have entered into covenant with God. You guys seeing what I'm saying so far? Let's go to verse 14. For he himself is our peace. That's talking about Jesus has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinance, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near." For through Him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. So now, what this has said thus far, is that there was a middle wall of separation. And now that's been broken down. It was broken down because it was abolished in His flesh. There was enmity between Israel and everybody else. Because these were the people of God. These were God's chosen people. 
They were to be a light to the world, if you will. And you could come into covenant, but you were not ethnically born as a part of that nation. And so in doing so, the law of commandments contained in order, he creates in himself one new man. Fine, we get that. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Everybody, Jew, Greek, doesn't matter. True statement. But what does this have to do with? What is this middle wall of separation? Well, we'll come back to that. Let's go to chapter 3, verse 1. Same context. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. Now, Paul is imprisoned. Why is Paul in prison? I'll tell you here in a minute. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. So we're seeing another mystery, another talk of this mystery. When was this revealed to Paul? Remember, he spent three years in the desert being trained by Jesus. As I have briefly written already, by which you read that you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. There's the word mystery again. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So again, we're getting new information again. They didn't know. Was it there for them to see? Maybe, but they certainly didn't know. So Paul is saying, this has been revealed to me by Jesus, and this revelation is now, at this time, being revealed. What is it? Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. So in other words, this mystery that the nation was not prepared for was that the Gentile world would now come into covenant as a joint heir. They were an heir. Why were they an heir? The seed of Abraham. Man, Gentile, now enters in. They were not prepared for that. How do we know they weren't prepared for it? Well, let's read Acts chapter 10 because that'll tell you everything you need to know. Acts chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 1. Most of you will know this is a vision that Peter has. It says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man of one and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to people and prayed to God always. Now, I'm going to stop. He's a Gentile man, okay? Is he in covenant with God? He could be. Because to become in covenant, you would have to enter into covenant. You would become circumcised. You would give up your false gods and your foreign nation and all your heritage, and you would come underneath the commandments. It does not say that he did that. But he certainly had a fear of the Lord. He could have done it, but he has a reverence for God, Yahweh. Not all the other gods of Rome, and there were plenty of them, including the Caesars. But he feared God. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw, or he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now here's the thing. Does Cornelius know who Peter is? Maybe. Probably not. He also didn't give him an address. Just got a house by the sea. Okay, thanks for clearing that up. So here he is, this angel says, he will tell you, when you get this Peter here, he will tell you what you must do. 
That tells us that whatever he had previously done was short of what needed to be done in some capacity. Let's go to verse 9. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Now, this was a normal practice. They would pray sometimes two or three times a day. This was normal. Verse 10, then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. And while they, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. So what's he referring to? The dietary laws. And a voice spoke to him again and said a second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, if you think this is the passage that's giving you a green light to eliminate the dietary laws, you didn't read far enough. It has nothing to do with that. Let's go on. Verse 17. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision he had seen meant. Okay. What did Peter understand of this vision? Nothing. He's trying to figure it out. So if this is God's way of doing away with the dietary laws, Peter didn't get the message. Behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house. And he stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Now, what do you notice that the Spirit didn't tell him? Why they're here. It just said, Go. So then Peter went down to the man who has been sent to him from Cornelius. Yes, I am he who, see, who you see. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy agent to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged with them. And on the next day, Peter went with him and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. So you notice how they said that he feared God and he had a good reputation among all the Jews. Because you're not going to get a Jew to go to a Roman soldier. Especially the guy in charge of Roman soldiers. Like, come hang out at my house. That doesn't end well. So, Peter goes the next day. And some others go with him. Some of the brethren. Who are the brethren? People just like Jewish believers. All of these guys are Jewish believers. Verse 24. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them. And he called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. And then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one, uh, go to one of another nation. That is true. They were not supposed to be in the house of a non-Jewish person. It was part of the law. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So what is the meaning of the vision? All people. It has nothing to do with food. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked them, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon and Tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I went to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. What did he just say? God told us to call you here, and you're going to tell us stuff. So uh, preach, boy. No pressure, right? 
He doesn't even know why he's there. So Peter opened his mouth, verse 34. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Now, works righteousness, a law thing, not a new covenant thing. Whoever fears him and works righteousness. In other words, Cornelius was doing the right things. He feared God and he was doing the works of righteousness. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. Peace to what? Remember, we talked about that. We now have peace with God. He is the Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things. Which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed, by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Who are the people chosen before by God? He's talking about all his followers. The disciples all saw him, not the twelve. Remember, there are hundreds of disciples. Paul tells us that there were over 500 brethren at once that saw him in 1 Corinthians 15, and many of whom are still alive. So if you don't believe me, go ask them. They saw him too. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to (coughs) excuse me, testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in his name will receive remissions of sins. In other words, they will be what? They will be redeemed. How do they do that? Through his name. Whoever believes in his name receives remissions of sin. So he didn't say that you have to make a sacrifice. He didn't say that you have to attend synagogue. He didn't say that you have to give alms. He said believe in his name. He didn't say bow your head and close your eyes and let me lead you through the sinner's prayer. He didn't say any of that. He said believe in him. That's what matters. Not belief that he exists, that he was a prophet, that he was a good man, that he's a way to God. The demons believe in God and they tremble. Believe in him. In other words, you're putting your faith, your trust, your hope in him. Therefore, your life would be radically different. Whenever somebody believes in him, they will receive remissions of sin. And look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision, the Jews, who believed, they were believers, were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. How did they know that? For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Now, why were they astonished? Step one we don't know why we're going. Step two, you're Gentiles. This is with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. It's for us. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and then they asked him to stay a few days. Like, guys, this, they weren't prepared for this. This is a part of God's plan in this new covenant. They weren't expecting that. They're shocked. In fact, let's go to chapter 11, verse 1. I'm almost done, I promise. So this is just moving right along, okay? Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea 
heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Who are the apostles and brethren that were in Judea? The Jewish believers. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them? This is a problem. Who did this? Those of the circumcision, the Jewish believers. You went into their house. You shared a meal with them. Do you not know what the commandments say? But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, uh, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a loud voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and, and all were drawn up again into heaven. So far, sounds familiar, right? Just laying it out there. Verse 11, at that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. So I did. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you the words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as upon us at the beginning. We're talking about Acts chapter 2. Then I remember the word of the Lord, how he had said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the, on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? So he's explaining it to them. Guys, the same thing happened to them that happened to us. I had a vision just looking for lunch. I had a vision. These guys show up. An angel sent them. The Spirit of God told me to go. I went. I wasn't expecting anything. I was just being obedient. God granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. They heard these things. Verse 18, they became silent. They glorified God. And God also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. You see, guys, this is the problem. Is that we are a recipient of that covenant. We enter into it the same way. Nothing has changed. In Romans chapter 11, if you read Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 11, you'll see talking about the nation of Israel's past. In chapter 10, it's present. In chapter 11, it's future. The church has in no way superseded Israel. There are some that will teach that, that the church has now got all the blessings of Israel. It's ironic that they take all the blessings and leave out all the cursings, but be that as it may, that is nonsensical. And Paul makes that abundantly clear. In verse 1 it says, I say then, has God sent cast away his people? Who is his people? It's the nation of Israel. Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that Scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee, uh, the knee to Baal. Even so that at this present time there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace, but it is of works. It is no longer grace. Others, otherwise, work is no longer work. Now, I'm going to stop here just for a second. What is the election of grace? What were those who are reserved, those elect? It's still talking about Israel. These Jewish believers, these people 
were still not bowed. He's making a connection to what was going on at the time of Elijah and what's happening here. At this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. The nation of Israel was God's chosen people. This has nothing to do with salvation of believers. And when he's talking about works and no longer grace and all of that, there's no longer a way to be redeemed by keeping the commandments because those have been fulfilled through Jesus. Verse 7, but then, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. And the rest were blinded just as it is is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David said, let their trouble become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Who's they? It's the nation of Israel. Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And this is interesting. If you understand stuff I've talked about in the past, that the nation of Israel is supposed to be set apart, a holy nation to God, that people would see the blessings. That's why when they would go into these other lands, we heard how God brought you through Egypt, through the Red Sea. Like, it would get their attention. They were supposed to be an example of God's goodness, mercy, and grace in the Old Testament to all nations. How'd they do? Not the greatest. But here, the Gentiles are supposed to do what? Provoke them to jealousy. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? He's still talking about my brethren, the nation of Israel, my people. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them become a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say that branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off. And you stand by faith, but do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity. But towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. There it is again. What mystery? Lest you should be wise in your own opinions, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When it was a mystery, why is it a mystery? They weren't prepared for that. You see, we've seen this three different times. What this is talking about is this tree. And that the natural tree, the branches of that tree, were Israel. They were always a part of God. They are not the tree. If you want to get technical, the tree is God. The branches would come up, but he cut those branches off for a time because of their unbelief. And as a result, grafted wild branches back in. And then it says, but does that mean that he won't graft the natural branches back? Not at all. You see... Jew, Gentile, together is the body of Christ. Salvation has come to us to do what? Provoke them to jealousy. Because now the Gentile world is in covenant relationship with God for the first time ever. 
Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 again. Last one. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, in the flesh separated from God, who were called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, who were in covenant in the flesh with God, made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How were you brought near? The blood, the redemption, the sacrifice. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinance, so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, I didn't tell you exactly what salvation is. I didn't tell you what we're being saved from. Not yet, and I'm not going to today. But there's this middle wall of separation that he seems to be making a big deal. And whatever that was, it's been broken down. And many will tell you that it was the commandments. That's not it. Let me show you what it is. I've got a picture here. Inside the temple compound, you've got the temple itself. And anybody could come into this area. No big deal. Jew, Gentile, didn't matter. But you see this wall here? goes all the way around. You notice where it's at? It's in the middle. It was the wall that separated the Jew and the Gentile. Gentiles could not go in there. In fact, in Ephesians, and I think it's Acts 21 or 27, something like that, when Paul's, where Paul's talking about to the church of Ephesus, the reason he was imprisoned is because he was accused of taking Gentiles behind this wall. But Jesus broke this wall down. But look how serious they take this. Look at this next picture. This is something that was found. It was dug up. There we go. Can you guys read that? Isn't that that good? You got it? You probably do got it. He'll translate for you afterwards. Go ahead to the next one. This is what it says. No outsider shall enter the protective enclosure around the sanctuary, and whoever is caught will only have himself to blame for the ensuing death. Who is an outsider? That's That's a Gentile. And this is one of the few things where the Romans would allow the Jews to bring uh, uh, public, or public crucifixion, public death in this. They were not allowed. They had to get permission from Rome. But in this case, if, they, if a Jew went behind, or excuse me, a Gentile went behind that wall, because that's what separated Jew from Gentile, because only Jews could enter into or towards the presence of God because they were in covenant relationship with him. Then... If somebody did that, then they could bring charges against them and have them killed. It's powerful when you've got to start picturing it and realizing what he's talking about. You see, because now, how do we enter into the presence of God? With that wall gone, what's separating it? Nothing. Anybody can come in. You guys see what he's talking about? So yes, the covenant was with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. However, as a result of their unbelief, we have been grafted in just like we always could now it's interesting it says the outsider if somebody who did what I'm saying Cornelius might have done and they would forsake all their gods and they would come into the nation of Israel and they would become circumcised and agreed and they would keep all the commandments and they would go to synagogue and they would do all these this series of things that they would have to do it says in the Old Testament that they were to be treated as a natural born citizen which meant what they would have a right to go through that wall There was always a path to God. But now it's been separated. There's one way. 
us through Jesus, the fulfillment of the commandments. You guys see that? Very powerful when you begin to get this. Now, this is talking about all this new covenant. And also we're talking about a salvation. See how simple we've made it? And how much there really is in a depth to it? We should be so grateful for that depth that we, we just take for granted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is true. And Lord, we thank you that in all things that we can be in covenant fellowship with you, that we have peace with you, that we have access to you, that we can enter into your throne room and find grace any time that we need it. And it's through your word that we discover all your attributes and your characters, Lord, and how you've loved us and redeemed us and set us free from the curse of, of, the, uh, of the law, Lord, and that we are no longer bound by the chains of the enemy. We're no longer bound by sin, that we can overcome all of those things. And Lord, I thank you that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that everywhere we go, you go. And everything we say is words from you and everything we touch is your hands touching, Lord. That our feet are going and our hands are, are reaching out to heal, Lord. That we operate in the power of the Holy Ghost, Lord, every day. And so we thank you for that and we give you all the glory. It's in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We will see you Wednesday.